The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We want to get the latest on what's happening in Israel. Uh, Hillary Kalisman, professor at the University of Colorado, Boulder. Oh, she may have been to Casa Bonita. Could have been. Where's Let's ask my... her before we get into the Middle East situation. Okay, go. Because I don't want to... You know, because it's such a tragic and horrible situation that we don't want to be at all lighthearted. But before we get there, have you been to Casa Bonita? I have not. I've driven past it many times, though. All right. Ah, and I, I would another, like to go, but I think it's hard to get there right now. I have another good recommendation for you. I just went this weekend. My son graduated from University of Colorado. He picked, I think, the most expensive restaurant in, in Denver, Fruition. So I recommend Fruition if you haven't been there. Um, all right, Hillary, let's get to... Uh, Israel here, very, very difficult situation here. Do you have a sense of how this might play out? I mean, it's just been on and on and on. And now with the horrific attack from, you know, now 10 days ago, it's taken a whole new level here. Do you have any sense of how this might develop over the coming weeks and months? It's a difficult question. And I would say, I would say I don't, um, I don't necessarily see any kind of long-term easing of the conflict either. Um, it's something where you have an Israeli government reeling from intelligence failures, yep. trying to figure out um, what is the best option while trying to kind of please, like trying to reassure their constituents that they can in fact protect their citizens. On the other hand, their tactics so far have been, it seems quite ineffective and causing a lot of civilian deaths within Gaza. Um, so I do think a ground invasion is imminent. I think the part that I worry about in particular, is what is the end game for any of the involved parties here? So if you're the Palestinians, can you give us just educate us a little bit here? To what extent do the Palestinian people in that region support Hamas? Well, so Hamas was elected in 2006. Um, over, you know, sort of about 50% of the population in Gaza would not have been old enough to elect them. Um, and I would say, I don't, I haven't heard sort of very many support people supporting Hamas's current actions and also their fallout, right? It's something though where Hamas, you know, sort of, so it's been a long time since 2006, right? Yep. Um, and you've had Palestinians in Gaza, in particular, also in the West Bank, protesting, sort of demanding that their self-determination not continue to be put on the back burner, that their material conditions improve. 
Um, in 2018, you had this great march of return where you had Palestinians protesting daily at the border fence with Gaza. And it had no effect. Many of them were killed. So it's something where the Palestinians living in those areas, the Palestinians living in Gaza, I don't think have seen any tangible benefits from Hamas as a government. And they're certainly not seeing any tangible benefits from Hamas acting as a has been historically as a terrorist organization. Have they had any, have they seen, did they see any tangible ben benefits from um, the PLO, the PLA? Had they seen any tangible benefits from help out of Jordan or Egypt? I mean, ha has anything been helpful to the Palestinians since like 1948? <laughs> oh, um, I would say there have been periods where things have been better. Um, the period you know, sort of, so between 1948 and 1967, um, the West Bank in particular belonged to Jordan, right? Jordan annexed it, including East Jerusalem. And Palestinians were made citizens. Now, again, Palestinians were, many were extremely angry. The King of Jordan gets assassinated um, for agreeing to sort of work with Israel in 1948. Um, and Gaza is, um, occupied by Egypt, but Egypt doesn't want to annex it. It doesn't want to make it part of Egypt. It doesn't want that Palestinian population. That said, during that period, you are able to have, you know, sort of Palestinians beginning to kind of build up a livelihood again. But I want to emphasize they don't have Palestinian sovereignty. They don't have a state. Um, and one of the other things to remember, right, is that the Palestinian population without a state, without a standing army, without even, you know, sort of the ability to collect their own taxes. And again, this worsens under Israeli occupation after the war of 1967. You have um, essentially, again, sort of their self-determination postponed. And one of the, um, and they also have sort of very little bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli state. The periods in which they are able to get bargaining power are periods in which they make it harder for Israel to continue the situation of having Palestinians without a state and continuing to occupy them. Yeah, this is... But, a, um, a, I'm yeah, just, no, please continue. Just 30 seconds left, Professor. Is there anywhere for Palestinians to go in this world? I mean, what do they do? It's so hard. And again, it is so many ordinary people who would like to live somewhere in safety with their children. Um, and one of the things I want, I really want to emphasize here is that the future, the future safety of Israel also depends on there being somewhere for Palestinians to go and be safe. Yep. Um, they're entwined. And I think the the Hamas terrorist attacks are a horrible, horrible, unjustified yep. wake-up call for the Israeli government to sort of say, no, like, you cannot yep. keep your population safe with this Palestinian yep. population without statehood right. I understand. next to you. All right, Professor, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Hillary Kalisman, she's a professor at the University of Colorado uh, at Boulder. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What's a fixed income investor to do? 2022 was just the worst, maybe of all time, for fixed income investing. This year's it's not much better. If you're, if you're in high yield this year, bad. If you're in high yield, you, you've had some positive returns, but that's about it. So let's check in with somebody who does this investing stuff for a living. Mike Green, he's a portfolio manager and chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Mike, thanks for, so much for joining us here. How are you guys approaching this market here? I'd love to get kind of how you entered the year and maybe how you've kind of repositioned, if at all, here as we uh, get into you know the, the fourth quarter. Well, fortunately, at Simplify, we run a number of strategies. So we've had everything ranging from our uh, interest rate hedge product, PFIX, which looks like it's on track for a second year of a row of just being a phenomenal performer. But simply, that's just betting against rates, right? It's betting on higher interest rates. It's worked as a fantastic portfolio hedge. Uh, in terms of my personal exposure in, in funds that I directly manage, I have been biased towards bonds and duration. And obviously, that's been the wrong call for the year. I think the interesting question is why in the face of much higher interest rates are we not seeing equity markets respond? And I think the most interesting aspect of it is simply that we're not seeing flexing in demand. We're not seeing that marginal player who can say, I think equities are relatively unattractive versus bonds. We hear an awful lot about the very low equity risk premium, but we're not really seeing allocations change in a meaningful way. And that, that strikes me as one of the most interesting dynamics that's playing out in markets today. I think it plays into a, a bunch of the material and emphasis that I place on passive investment strategies, systematic investment strategies, where portfolio construction is not really tied to the underlying fundamentals. It's tied to historical return profiles. Yeah, well, it seems like everybody, uh, well, it seems like a lot of big names have been burned. You know, Stephen Major recently came out and said he was wrong um, on bonds. Uh, he pointed out that it, debts and deficits hadn't mattered in the past, and now they do. Lacey Hunt over at Hoisington Investment Management has said this is one of the toughest years of his career, and he's 81. So he's been in the market <laughs> for a long time. Um, and everybody uh, is like, hey, inflation is coming down. In fact, there has been no decline this large in inflation that hasn't been involved with a recession in its immediate aftermath. So um, I guess I have two main questions, Mike. One, uh, do you think inflation is really solved? Has the Fed you know, done it? And two, are we he headed for a recession or is Paul's soft landing scenario <laughs> going to play out? So I, it, I, I'm very much in the camp that says that the data is currently misleading us. I agree, by the way, that the inflation story has played out as many of the transitory inflationists, myself included, would have argued we've seen a remarkable deceleration. If you go further within the inflation data series and you focus on market-based measures, and so just very quickly, remember 
that about 35% of the CPI numbers that we see are what are called imputed measures. Those would include things like owner's equivalent rent, very slow moving adjustments that they make, even really silly things like the cost of banking services is currently very elevated because of the way we define that, right? So crazily enough, the cost of banking services is defined by the spread between the risk-free rate and the rate that is being paid on deposits. That means that as the Fed has raised interest rates, they've dramatically increased the imputed costs of banking services. So those are the factors that are actually currently driving or keeping inflation elevated. If you use the market-based measures, the ones that you experience on a year-over-year -year basis as you go to the grocery store, those are now running below 2%, below the below Powell's targets, um, and would suggest that that's not the problem at all. I think the clear challenge that we're facing is modestly increased supply. Again, not a crazy increase. I understand people point to higher level of deficits, et cetera. We haven't seen an unbelievably large increase in the supply of bonds, but the bigger story continues to be the relative challenge of getting people to actually change their allocations and say, should we allocate to equities away from bonds? That's just a structurally very slow process. What about, uh, I saw a story this morning, China or Chinese investors have sold more U.S. holding stocks and bonds um, than they have in the past four years because they're defending the yuan. And a lot of countries are defending their currency against a stronger dollar. Um, do foreign investors who are huge holders of treasuries, are they a problem for this market? Well, they're definitely not helping, right? Because we would hope to see an increase in demand. Now, the irony, of course, is that their source of supply, the reason that they've accumulated those are the very large trade surpluses that they run with the United States, and then their failure to reinvest in any meaningful way, which historically would have led to their currency appreciating. Now, as they face unattractive commodity prices, as they face a slowing in the Chinese economy, as they face capital flight from within their own economy, you're seeing them effectively have to defend their currencies against the rising U.S. dollar. Um, and, you know, yes, they're no longer accumulating in the same manner, but we're not really seeing a wholesale crash, right? The, the, the uh, tick type indicators for demand from foreign buyers are muted, but it's not a crash in demand. The other thing that I would just highlight is, is that we're seeing this. This is not a U.S. story. We're seeing bonds sell off on a global basis. And so we hear an awful lot about the unsustainability of U.S. fiscal policy. The simple reality is I look at a place like France, which is running almost the same deficit to GDP as the United States and doing so on a much more structural basis. And their bonds are actually trading inside the United States. That suggests to me there's a combination of diversification and very slow to respond demand. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting a couple minutes of your time. Uh, that's Mike Green. He's a portfolio manager and chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management. He's been in the business a long time, has seen the various cycles here. Used to um, run Peter Thiel's money. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Which is a lot of money. And we yep. have an amazing story on the terminal today um, showing that of the 271 people Peter Thiel has bribed to drop out of college, yeah. You know, he pays kids $100,000 to drop out of college. 11 have founded billion-dollar-plus businesses. Whoa. 
Almost 12, because one guy just uh, sold out with 975 <laughs> well, for million. Him. That's a good return uh, on that investment. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Here's a I think one of the most fascinating stories on the Bloomberg Terminal today, a Bloomberg News and Morning Consult poll provides one of the most detailed looks yet at how the 2024 presidential race is playing out in the seven swing states that could decide who wins the title. Uh, the reporter on this story, Gregory Corti, uh, joins us. He's a White House and political correspondent with Bloomberg News. Uh, Gregory, what's the poll telling us here? Well, what this poll uh, does... Uh Unlike a lot of the other polls you see out there, which are national polls, this just looks at the seven swing states that are most likely to matter next year. Uh, and they are Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada. And what we see in this poll is that President, former President Trump is up in five of those seven states. Uh, Biden is up in only one. President Biden is leading in Nevada. And then Michigan is a dead tie, according to our poll. But across these, if you look across the swing states, President, uh, former President Trump is overperforming uh, what you see in the national polls. And obviously, that's a good sign for him because these are the states that are actually going to matter. So we're, you know, 13 months before the election. If I were the Biden reelection campaign, how would I interpret these numbers? How concerned would I be? Oh, I think they're concerned, and I, they're very likely seeing similar kinds of things in their own internal polling. But they would also say, look, it's 13 months before the election. Certainly, we've had some economic challenges coming out of the pandemic. Uh, inflation is ebbing somewhat, but people still feel it, absolutely. Uh, in, in, in the, in the, what we see in this poll is it's those kitchen table issues. It's those bread and butter household economics that is really killing the president right now. Uh, there's a huge trust deficit. Uh, people, uh, voters in these swing states are trusting former President Trump on the issue of the economy. And all the sub-issues that we look at in the economy, we really delve deep to look at, okay, when you talk about the economy, are you talking about inflation? Are you talking about the stock market? Are you talking about taxes or spending? And across all of those economic issues, President Trump had the advantage uh, in these swing state voters. What President Biden is hoping is that as the economy improves, if we're able to have that soft landing and avoid the recession, if people are looking up by this time next year, uh, more optimistic about where the economy is going and not just where it has been, there's an opportunity for President Biden to be reelected. The problem is, I think, pretty clearly inflation. Yep. Like, even if inflation got down to zero today, you've still seen prices run up at an unbelievable pace, and they're not turning around. Plus, wages have not kept up, even nearly um, with inflation. I thought we had wages now going ahead of inflation. No, 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 no. No? I, no. I, I mean, I, I look, obviously, very closely at cars, and I just see. <laughs> Hannah was right. Hannah Elliott wrote a story about the Jeep 392 two years ago going for $74,000, and she thought that was way too expensive. I wrote about it, or I'm looking at it this week, and I see it at 92.5. So that's a huge yep. jump. It's up 23%. Um, and I guess my question, uh, Gregory, is this: a lot of this is very clearly, um, inflation is very clearly being fueled by excess spending, which was understandable during uh, COVID, 
but we're still running one and a half trillion dollar deficits. And President Biden is like all in favor of spending as much as possible, or at least that's how it appears, right? So how does he turn that narrative around, um, you know, while we're, while, we're, while we're looking at these huge deficits in debt? Yeah, so what you've seen is, uh, and I think you, you exactly nailed it, right? So even if uh, there's a little bit of disinflation, that's not the same as deflation, right? So, so people have seen this cumulative inflation over the course of the Biden years. Again, we we're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, you know, this is, this, a lot of this spending happened in the tail end of the Trump administration. Those arguments are falling on deaf ears. Uh, Republicans uh, have have branded this economy as Bidenomics, right? The, all this inflation that people are Biden seeing. Biden has branded this seeing. economy as Bidenomics. It, well, what, what, what President Biden has tried to do is rebrand it as this package of uh, social spending and investment in green uh, energy technologies, infrastructure, all of these things, but people are looking at the outputs and not the policy inputs. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's the economic indicators, but even more than that, just what people are feeling, that, that perception. And it's going to take a while to change perceptions because the cumulative inflation during the Biden years is, net, is more than 16%. Wow. People, it takes a while for people to digest uh, that prices are now stabilizing a little bit. They still are comparing what they're spending now to what they were spending pre-pandemic. Yeah, what, what I'm feeling is I can barely afford like groceries, childcare, and housing at a time when, um, you know, if you want to buy a car, get ready for 8 or 9% interest rates on that. Yep. You know, if you want to buy a house, Ditto yep, with exactly the mortgage. Right. So it's like, uh, and we're still going to say, hey, let's let's do a $1 trillion additional spending bill, mm -hmm, right? Exactly. What? <laughs> so Gregory, um, the president, we had some more news on some of his legal challenges today regarding one of his former aides pleading guilty. He still has a lot of legal challenges ahead of him. That doesn't seem to be hurting him at all, does it? Yeah, I just saw that headline crossing the, the Bloomberg terminal uh, as I was uh, coming on here. Uh, what we saw in this poll was uh, one of the interesting things is uh, one of the questions we asked is, what have you seen, read or heard about these candidates in the past few days or weeks? And it called for an open-ended response. So we got to see actually what they were hearing, how they were viewing these candidates. And what you heard a lot about President Biden, about his age, and what you heard overwhelmingly about President Trump is about his legal troubles. And interestingly, we heard it both from Democrats and Republicans. Trump supporters are talking a lot about his legal troubles. Of course, they're doing it in a different context. They're saying, all I hear about is <laughs> President Trump's legal troubles. I wish I would hear less about it. Everybody's fixated on it. Uh, this is all sort of a witch hunt. Uh, but it's certainly that news is permeating. People are, are reading it. Uh, and they're reading it on a more granular level than I expected. When, when pre former President Trump is hit with a gag order, people mention that gag order. They're, they're, they're following some of the, the micro developments of this. So it really is capturing people's attention. But the partisanship is just so entrenched yep. that it's not moving those numbers. And the, the, the economic uh, issues, as we're seeing in this swing states poll, are dwarfing everything else that people know about these candidates. Doesn't uh, the Democratic Party... Um, doesn't the DNC need to do more to boost Kamala Harris's profile? Because if you're worried about President Biden's age, um, you know, without discussing whether or not that's a valid concern, um, you've got to feel comfortable with the vice president. Because in that case, you're casting a vote not just for President Biden, um, but 
it's I guess you're if you're worried about his age, it's likely that um, you must think Kamala Harris could eventually take that spot over. Yeah, we asked this question in this swing states poll and a majority of uh, voters said that uh, the, the the vice presidential pick is more important this year than it has been in the past. Uh, for Democrats, 30% said it was much more important who the vice president is because of the age of these candidates. A little bit less, maybe 24% for Republican voters said the vice presidential pick is more important. Of course, we don't know who President Trump, assuming he's a nominee, we don't know who his running mate will be. It will be almost certainly someone other than Mike Pence, who was vice president in his, his first term. Uh, but yes, voters in both parties are more fixated on the vice presidency just because of the age of these these two candidates. All right, Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, fascinating uh, reporting here today. Gregory Corte, uh, uh, he is the White House and politics correspondent uh, with Bloomberg News. And uh, Bloomberg News, along with Morning Consult, uh, did a pretty, um, uh, pretty deep dive poll uh, focusing on seven swing states that could decide uh, who wins the White House. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We're streaming live on YouTube, so go over and check that out. A little roundtable here on some earnings. Dan Ives, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. He joins us live here uh, in his Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm not sure if he's going to State College. Uh, this weekend, not sure about that. Or are they are they at yeah, Ohio State? Yeah, we'll, we'll be going to Columbus you're, Friday night. Oh, you're going to Columbus? Yeah. Oh, awesome. nice. I Very know, good. I, I got a bar for you. There, uh, <laughs> you go in there, order whatever you want, food and drink. If Penn State wins, they will pick up the tab. Wow. I'm going to hook you up. All right, Keith and Ranganathan, she's definitely not going to Columbus, Ohio, because uh, she's a professional. She covers the media sector for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we want to talk about Netflix and, and ESPN. Dan Knives, let's start with you. Tesla stock uh, not liking what they're hearing from Elon Musk. What was your takeaway from the quarter uh, for Tesla? Look, it was a disaster conference call. I mean, because it was the street wanted to hear about pricing, have the price cuts ended. What is the outlook like going forward? You know, instead, this is really must be more of an economist, you know, obviously much more somber. And I think investors leave with just more questions and answers in terms of this price war that, you know, we've talked about here a lot. You know, how long does it continue? And obviously on Cybertruck, that's going to be a huge vehicle relative to demand, but definitely going to be an uphill battle from production perspective. So I, I got a million questions after that conference call. But my first one is on the Cybertruck. He uh, contends that this is like a special project and that makes it extra difficult to produce. Why is that? Why isn't it just a normal truck? I mean, this could be like an F-150 competitor. Um, it's so cool. Everybody wants it. So many people put in pre-orders. Why is it so hard to make? Yeah, from an engineering perspective, it's very difficult. So that's one, no one argues Because about it's what, a special shape? Because of the shape, because of the materials in there, as well as what they're trying to do from a technology perspective. That's why you talk about getting mass production. Hey, look, that's essentially why they built out Austin in terms mm -hmm. of Giga. But I do think must caution, of course, not the demand side, but the production. And to Matt's point, look, that's always been the issue with Tesla. It's about not about the demand story. It's about the production. Ironically, now, for the first time, demand sort of hit so equilibrium when it comes to supply. 
All right, so we've got uh, Tesla down about uh, eight nine percent. On the other side, we got Netflix up fifteen percent, monster quarter. Geetha, what did you hear on the conference call last night? What did investors hear on the conference call last night that got them all hot and lathered here for Netflix? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a blockbuster quarter on all fronts, uh, Paul. So absolutely, it, the, the beat was, it was not just a beat, it was the magnitude of the beat. And the story, the narrative is really clean now. It's, it's getting much, much clearer, uh, you know, as far as the margin trajectory is concerned. They, they promised about 22, 23% margins going out in 2024. They promised, you know, subscriber momentum kind of extending into 2024. So really kind of firing on all cylinders, if you will. So, Geetha, it seems like, I mean, you follow the whole media space. It seems like Tesla's really pulling away from everybody you else. You mean Netflix, right? Uh, net, 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 Netflix, thank you. Uh, the Netflix is just pulling away from all the competitors, maybe including Disney. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. We already know that Netflix is way ahead of its rivals, not only when it comes to subscriber scale, but also in terms of profitability. Remember, this is the only company that is generating profits today, Paul, on its streaming business. The rest of the space, this company is going to generate about seven, eight billion dollars in profits this year. The rest of the space, including Disney, Warner Brothers, you know, Paramount, all of them collectively will uh, throw out about eight to nine billion dollars okay. in streaming losses. Um, so obviously, when it comes to profitability, when it comes to operating leverage, there is no doubt that Netflix is the clear winner. They are the dominant player. But what was the biggest surprise was the fact that they they're just throwing out tons of free cash flow. So this was you know a stock that we used to kind of almost mock and ridicule, talking about you know you know three and a half billion dollars in cash burn this year. They're putting out six and a half billion dollars of free cash yeah, flow. So this about. is, yeah, yeah, this is a free cash flow machine. And, and not just that, they committed to $10 billion in buyback. So as you kind of look, you know, at them shrinking that float, look at EPS growth. I mean, it's going to be in the 30% range for the next few years. And that is really huge in kind of this media landscape right now. I mean, I, I, my takeaway from our screen time conference last week was that uh, Netflix is the boss of everything. I mean, yeah. if I were uh, buying stocks, I would have loaded up after I saw. Did you watch Harry Styles interviewing Ted Sarandos? I mean, Lucas Shaw interviewing Ted Sarandos <laughs> I last week. I thought it was that guy came off like an absolute boss. They're doing everything right. They are. Look, and it, you know, I think the thing here, it's all not just about content. You think about the competition, what was coming from Disney. They've now taken a step back and you look at that conference, well, that was a flex to muscles, especially when you look at free cash flow. You, if you look at Netflix versus Tesla, just to take those yep. last night, it's not necessarily about the results. It's also, if you look at the communication, the street wants to understand what the path looks like in a very uncertain, cloudy market. Geetha, what's the headwind? What's the biggest risk for Ted and Flix? Right now, they seem to be getting everything right. So the one concern I think that kind of is still kind of lingering a little bit is this whole revenue growth reacceleration. I mean, they've got all the levers in place, but ARPU has been under pressure a little bit. We saw ARPU decline a little bit in the ARPU third quarter. ARPU is average revenue per user. Revenue Look per at you. Yes, yes, average revenue per user. Um, so that has become like the really big metric now to kind of gauge the success in the streaming world. They did, of course, caution to that. Um, they said it's going to be a little bit flat. But then again, we have price increases that are going into effect. We have the ad business that's going to take off. So as we kind of look to 2024, you know, everything is in place for that that metric to kind of ramp up pretty significantly as well. So right now they're getting everything right. Hey, Dan, my big question on 
EVs in general. And I just purchased a new vehicle. We're going back to Tesla now. We're going back to Tesla. It's kind of hard to keep track. Well, well, that's why. I'm These are two very different companies. I know, know? but this very, they're both r ripping stocks. People, these are the ones that are most ripped. Well, Tesla's all the getting time. killed today, right? Netflix yeah. is up 15%. Yep. Tesla is down 8.7. But for me, the big issue, having just purchased a new car, BMW X3. He loves the X3. Love the X3. Although I have like 12 miles on it. I'm just walking back and forth to the train every day. Um, is end demand. I, I really have questions about what is the real demand out there in America for EVs? Like I'm thinking beyond the rich, beyond like a second or third car. Like, right? Is there a political angle here? Like I think half the country will never buy an EV. Look, I mean, I, you're starting to get into a debate around what the demand curve looks like. But yep. ultimately, price is so important. If you look, go back to traditionally Tesla, 75, 80, 85,000. Now, even with the, the, the tax credits, 35, 40,000, depending on what yeah. state you live in. But it does also, you talk about the battle from the Beltway and what's happening here, even with UAW and what's happening in Detroit with, with GM and Ford, it's all price driven. 3% of automobiles in the U.S. or EVs today. So we believe that goes 10, 12 percent. There's going to be massive winners, but it also comes down to price, especially in this macro. I mean, as long as, you know, President Biden is going to pay me, he's basically he's going to borrow money from my kids and my grandkids to pay me to buy an EV. Um, <laughs> I'm interested, but I want the Cybertruck. That's what that's the one I want. Exactly. You know, and, Miller, Miller, and Miller's going to have the Cybertruck while watching Netflix in full self-driving in three, <laughs> four years. Hey, Keith, another big day in the world of media yesterday was, or in the past couple of days, Disney, for the first time ever, released financial results for ESPN. And my takeaway was two things. One, uh, their profit margins are, well, there's still a lot of cash flow, almost $3 billion of, of EBITDA. But it declined big time, and it's nowhere near the number it used to be. What is ESPN, or what is Walt Disney Company going to do with ESPN? Yeah, that's the big, big question, Paul. And I mean, one of the reasons that they kind of broke this out as a standalone unit was because they really kind of wanted to show, you know, potentially future investors if they're planning to sell a stake or if they're planning to spin it off, you know, what the financials kind of look like. Um, but obviously, you know, the top line actually looks pretty stable at $16 billion. It, it's really the, the profit margins, as you rightly pointed out. I mean, you look at the traditional cable business, it's about 30, 35% margins. You look at ESPN's margins, it's 15% this year. So that is a little bit concerning. Concerning, and obviously it is only going to go lower given that, you know, sports rights fees are increasing astronomically. So they really need to do something with this asset. We know that they need to do it fast. The question is, do they sell it? Do they do they actually sell it to Apple as has kind of been said all uh, and, you know, or do they, you know, spin it out uh, again? We'll we'll have to wait and watch. I but kind of feel like they I are definitely going to. I kind of feel like I have to apologize to Geetha because the 25 years I had covering the media industry were the golden years. Everybody <laughs> made money. What I've left to Geetha is just a hodgepodge. I don't know what's going on out there, Geetha. What's the, I mean, can you get any investor out there to say, I want to overweight media? <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, everything is down in the dumps right now, other than, of course, Netflix. Um, <laughs> but we'll have to wait and watch what happens with Disney. I think they have a great collection of assets. They're trying to do everything that they can, but Bob Iger obviously has a lot of challenges ahead of him. Including naming right. a successor, maybe. Yeah, it seems like that um, is one of his worries, but others are just as pressing. I'll be interested to see if the leagues come in and get a piece of ESPN. Is that still on the table? Uh, Dan, what do you think? Uh, uh, could could like the NFL um, and 
some other professional sports leagues come in and take a big chunk of it? Look, we believe this is ultimately going to lead Apple to acquiring ESPN. Oh, you I think mean, Apple? It's all I mean, Apple. Our, our so does Laura Martin. Yeah. Our thesis has been, and Laura's talked about Laura like, says all of Disney. Disney. No, so Laura talks about Disney, yep. which you know obviously makes sense there too. But we believe it's really about ESPN, the live streaming uh, asset. Okay. If you look what happened with you know MLS and Messi. I think they recognize in terms of Cook and Cupertino, even though M&A is obviously not their sweet spot, ESPN is a unique asset. It'll be a better buy than Beats, right? And Beats that was three and a half billion. How much is ESPN going to cost? I mean, we think 40 to 45 billion is probably what would be the price tag. Nice. But then when you look at Disney, you know, as this conversation is talking about some of the parts you sell Disney, and that's why there's more and more pressure on Iger and the board. What's Disney worth? Like 150? Let me pull it up. Yeah, right yes. Yep. Disney Equity. is currently in market cap terms worth 153.7 billion. And we think about a third of that value. So if, if they get rid of, uh, if say they let's say they get 50 billion dollars for ESPN, Geetha, what is Disney then worth if they sell ESPN for 50 billion dollars? That is actually a really, really high multiple. So, you know, if you kind of look where cable stocks are trading right now, they're trading at about seven and a half times EBITDA. At seven and a half times EBITDA, ESPN would be worth about anywhere from about 22 to 25 billion. So oh, it, it'll okay. be interesting. If, it'll be interesting if they can get that 15x multiple. That that would actually be awesome. But again, <laughs> you have to kind of kind of look at, at at Disney's you know really bread and butter of the business. That is the parks business. That is going to you know just a few years ago, parks used to bring in only about 30 35 percent of operating income. This year, it's bringing in about 75 percent of operating Ooh. income at 10 billion dollars. Yep. So you know. Disney really is parks right now. And yep, parks itself should be worth, I think, $200 billion. Nice. So, I want to, yeah. uh, I just want to, Dan, finally get back to Tesla in terms of production and the Gigafactory. Um, there was a lot of talk on the call yesterday about um, whether Musk could do a lot of his production in Texas. Um, where, where are they going to build the most of their, you know, expansion? Or do, does their expansion not look as fruitful as it did, you know, before this call. Expansion is going to be in Austin, broader mm-hmm. Texas, as well as in China. I mean, they're they're focusing more and more away from California. Obviously, their course and away from spot, Monterey, away from Monterey. <laughs> yeah, and and look, and fundamentally, just speaks to mathematically, economically speaking, it's Texas. You talk about the Mexico plan that they're mm-hmm. going to, you know, ultimately start to build out, but it's really China. Capacity right now is not the issue. It's about the price cuts. Keep cutting prices. That's a bad spiral. Yep. All right. Dan Ives, uh, senior analyst at Wedbush Securities, covering all that fun stuff in tech. And Geetha Ranganathan, uh, she is a media analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence based down in Princeton. And Dan, heading off to Columbus, Ohio, to see undefeated the Penn great State. state of Ohio. Take on undefeated the Ohio State University. Ohio State. Huge. And look, I think it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a great game. I think Penn State comes out of the shoe with a W. Nice. There you go. I there. mean, I have no idea about sports. We'll put a couple like squash and sailing. Your, but your Ohio State. I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in. I'm in for Ohio State. <laughs> Let's put 20 bucks on it. All right, here we go. Deal. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It's Thursday, Matt, so that means we talk to one B. Ritholtz. Oh, yeah, uh, the big host picture. Of Masters in Business. He's a... Uh, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Ritholtz Wealth Management. I'm going to let you run with this, Matt. I don't know where well, you want to go. Well, I love the I love his blog, The Big Picture, which you can see on the web at ritholtz.com. Um, oh, by the way, uh, kicking off, there's a banner ad, Barry, um, at the top of your page for the Jeep Wrangler. And right now, <laughs> I'm driving a Jeep Wrangler uh, Rubicon 392. So basically, it's the Jeep Wrangler that everybody knows and loves, like every high school kid wants this car but they've shoehorned in a gigantic 6.4 liter v8 and i'm here to tell you it is loud and terrifying and i'm <laughs> loving every minute of it i had no idea barry um you still have to crank the steering wheel like three or four rotations before the tires find out about it on a jeep yeah i don't think they changed a whole lot there they just dropped a big engine and off to the races you know it's uh that seems to be a successful formula, for, especially for American automobiles. I wish somebody would tell the people at Ford because, <laughs> um, you know, they still they won't make a Bronco that has anything bigger than a V6 in it. And this 392, expensive as it is, and I'll get to that, but it's it's electrifying in its nope. no pun intended exactly <laughs> in its analog nature. Like it's such a great fun. Uh, piece of gear to drive. In fact, I wish you were here because I would give you the keys and we'd take it out right now. It's so you have a Jeep, right? I have a 2013 Rubicon, which I use basically. That that's my uh, uh, post-apocalypse uh, vehicle because it's just a hamster wheel inside and it goes everywhere. It's pretty much and, and anywhere. It's kind of unstoppable. That's the appeal <laughs> of those old analog CJs are that they're just great, fun cars. So, but I need to go to the inflation picture with That's this. exactly with the, what I wanted to do. Let's go, yes. because, I mean, I can't get in the seat, in the, behind the wheel of almost anything that you'd want to. Well, I'll tell you. the numbers you, that you're quoting exactly. here, $90,000. So, so you know what? Hannah um, Elliott from Bloomberg Pursuits, she drove the same car that I'm driving now uh, two years ago, the Jeep uh, Wrangler Rubicon 392. And back then she was like, Awesome car, but unbelievably expensive because they wanted $74,000 for it to start, <laughs> right? And now? That was 2021. Fast forward two years. The base price, $92,500. It's gone up more than 23%. And to me, this ties into the political story we have on uh, the Bloomberg Today, the fact that Donald Trump is leading President Biden in several key swing states because America just has had it up to here with this inflation. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, I'm skeptical of all of these surveys generally. We, we've spoken about this in the past, not just political surveys a year and change before the election that are notoriously unreliable. But generally speaking, when you ask people, hey, how much are you going to spend on Christmas? What do you think is happening with inflation? What what is what is the state of the economy? 
you know, I kind of blame the American education system and the emphasis on testing. Nobody is willing to say, how the hell do I know where inflation is going to be a year from now? Instead, hey, there's no penalties for taking a guess. And so they take a guess. So we end up with these surveys that are rarely accurate and, and very often tremendously misleading. Uh, just a perfect example, uh, a recent survey on inflation said, uh, how is inflation? And something like two thirds of the respondents said inflation is going up the past quarter. Hey, inflate or the past year from the past year, inflation fell from 9% down to 3%. Well, so that's because what? they look at the cumulative. It doesn't matter if inflation but, so drops in other words, to zero. They don't know how we, to you know, we talk about this. Question. We see the data day in and day out. But your average American doesn't care. If inflation so drops to zero now, it's them? still gone up by so much. No, what I'm at getting at is the economic up. sentiment, right? How, right. Uh, you know, Biden can be behind 5.4% economic growth in Q3. But the fact that it, prices have gone up by so much is what everyone cares about. And it doesn't matter if the Fed stops it. They've got to somehow bring it back down to where it was, right? If they want to average 2%, this is what Neil Grossman goes right, on about right, all the time. Right. If they want to average 2%, They've got to hold it there for like the next four decades. I disagree with that assessment. I'll tell you why. So nice. so we've talked about labor shortage and how wages are going up. We've talked about housing prices and how those have gone up. And now we're talking about automobiles. All three of these higher priced entities are not riding in, rising in price because the monetary um, circumstances are too loose. They're rising in price because we have shortages. We didn't build enough houses for 15 years following the financial crisis. Well, what about crisis. fiscal spending, dude? Is that so, not inflationary? So that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. The primary driver of the 21-22 inflationary surge was a massive, massive increase in fiscal stimulus, starting with CARES Act 1. Hey, it was 10% of GDP. That, that That's a number we haven't seen since the, the Great Depression. Arguably, it was the greatest fiscal stimulus in, in American history relative to, to GDP, but it was CARES Act 1, it was CARES Act 2. Behind that was the Tax Cuts and Job Act, which was about $3 trillion over, over 10 years. Then you have the CHIPS Act, and you have the infrastructure bill under this president, and CARES Act 3 under this president. So the combination of Trump and Biden the it's Inflation just, Reduction Act, by the way, what an ironic well, name. Also, right, it's also a ton of money. Now, some of these are spread out over 10 years. The Infrastructure Act, the CHIPS Act, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act are spread out over a decade. So it's not 5% this year, it's half a percent a year for 10 years. But here's the fascinating thing, and this is what I'm so intrigued by. When we just ask got 20 people, seconds, Barry. Just 20 seconds. Uh, where is sentiment? I, I just don't find sentiment, I just don't find the economy worse than the financial crisis, the dot-com implosion, or the 87 crash. And, and that's what people are saying it is. All right, Barry, thanks so much for joining us. We covered a lot there, everything from uh, GDP to the Jeep Rubicon with the six-point-something, I don't know, displaced <laughs> engine. Barry Ritholtz, host of Masters in Business, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Ritholtz Wealth Management, uh, joining us here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.